Hello and welcome to the Sync AI Tech Crack Podcast. On this podcast, you'll hear fascinating insights from all different levels of the AI tech community. To find out more, join us on our socials or on our website at syncni.com. But for now, I'd welcome you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the latest views of the AI tech scene. I'm your host, John, and today I'll be speaking to ESO's Sarah McAlevey, Director of Cyber Defense. Finian Mackin, Director of Security Architecture and Engineering, and Finn McGuire, DevOps Architect. Our topic of conversation today is how can DevSecOps deliver value to an organization by providing innovative ways to incorporate security at scale. Sarah, you're going to kick us off and tell us what exactly DevSecOps is. It is a lot of different things, a lot of different people. Let's start there. Um, and possibly start with what it is not to me. Okay. Uh, I'm probably in the same vein as DevOps itself, where it's not a job title. To me, it's that kind of idea of a methodology um, or an approach. Um, and DevSecOps is the same, where for me, it's really about that inclusion of those three different elements and not specifically looking at one or the other in relation to what it brings to the table, but maybe looking more so at what the other elements that are perhaps not your primary forte, what they bring. So I think underpinning that, there's an, a sense of real inclusion, where as coming from security and from cyber defense background, probably the first place I stop when I think of DevSecOps is the ops and the dev areas to mm-hmm. try and figure out what those workflows look like and then try and understand how I can make security intrinsic to those workflows that already exist. So I think for me that methodology has to be a shared um, and collaborative experience or application to a workflow as opposed to sort of a process in itself or or even a framework. I think it's even broader than that. Okay. Um, Particularly, probably, it's very tempting to come at it from a security point of view and to figure out, you know, I'm talking about zero trust and security first, and that's what DevSecOps means to me. But I think more importantly, I have to look to the left of where I stand and think, well, what is DevSecOps in the application world and what are the fundamentals that are driving this framework um, or methodology, to probably be more accurate, I think... Whenever I think of even the pillars of security, and some of those are just like confidentiality, availability, and integrity, those are not elements or pillars that are specific to security. Those are pillars that span across operation work, system admin work, developer applications. We want things to be stable, available. We want the data to be secure. So being able to ship features for an application developer doesn't walk away from those pillars in the same way that building systems at the operational level doesn't do that. Um, And security has to find a way to provide that element, its share of that DevSecOps model in a way that I think is really intrinsic and built into the overall objectives of the business, which effectively are to ship features, build applications that usually, in the majority of time, deal with data. And I I think where we see that evolution of where DevSecOps has come from, um, 
way back when, whenever I was working in mainframe uh, and JCL. The next kind of big movement that came along after the, the castle and moat sort of approach was big data. And then from big data, we went to platform engineering, where we're kind of now starting to orchestrate and organize big data across full platforms and, and the expansion of that across the cloud sort of pushed us into this next phase of the evolution. Um, DevOps came off the back of that. But again, central to all of these things was just applications and stacks that had to deal with huge amounts of data and often migrating into a perimeterless cloud environment. So kind of understanding DevSecOps is understanding that evolution and that this to me is the next stage where we didn't throw code over the wall or we didn't um, build systems and, and it worked on my machine, mm -hmm. but also then bringing in the security element of that. So it is not a job title, but if you are hiring somebody in DevSecOps, yeah. I think the core talents and skills that allow that to work and to actually be implemented correctly are that amazing ability to collaborate mm -hmm. and to kind of bring your share, but to start from not your primary skill, but to start off with the other elements in that stack, whether it's dev or sec or ops, and to understand and have a real curiosity about how they work. Okay. That's great. So we're going to get um, Finian or Finn's opinion on this as well. That's what I get Finn, that's Finn. great. <laughs> <laughs> Finn's your usual name. You can talk uh, Yeah, well, I suppose like, we're looking at it from an ops side. So like we would approach it from the complete opposite direction. You guys would, as like product, normally give us sort of a breakdown of what they actually need. And then that's something we have to deliver into features and make it out to the clients themselves. But we, you know, as developers, classically wouldn't look at... Um, the security side of it it would just be a case of how we need to get this to work and get it out and then there's sort of subject matter experts would pick up their parts later on like classically there would be an ops team that would look after the infrastructure side of it and they would handle all the physical security and that kind of stuff and then the security team would I don't know pen test or I'm sure you guys can cover that better than we can <laughs> um, and then the difference between the DevSecOps approach is like we want to break down all those silos and get those SMEs actually together in one room so we get everything figured out at the start and then we have all the security in the process as it goes along, uh, rather than us having to figure it out as we go and then you know, possibly get a breach at some point, which is what we don't want. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's quite exciting for me because DevSecOps is something that's like entirely new to me, basically. Um, traditionally, right, it's been all build everything and then apply security to it at some point towards the end. Yeah. Whereas now it's, um, it's like all disciplines in one team, it's, you know, educate everyone and equip everyone in the development and the ops teams to, you know, to build security in by default so that you're not waiting until just the, you know, the week or the day that you're going to yeah. deploy something. Actually, there's been a bit of forethought and a bit of a mindset across the team to do stuff right out of the box mm -hmm. rather than, um, I hate to say this, but, you know, kind of shift everything left, right, just to use the... Hear that Sorry, <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean it is true, right? So, and the, you know, the further, the sooner that you can, I'm not going to say left again. So this, <laughs> the sooner that you can discover the the issues, and the quicker that you can resolve them, right? Then you know, um, the quicker you're going to get your product out to market, and the more kind of assurance that you can have around what, what you're mm -hmm. making available. Um, so it's quite exciting for me because it's not something that I've ever really had any particular experience in before. I'm going to pick up 
on something Ben said about planning. Um, and maybe just to give the first Finn, <laughs> <laughs> or Finn TF as I call him, because he, he lives his life in Terrathon. <laughs> um, <clears throat> just about that planning stage and how that is, that's the key starting point definitely for that collaboration to try and understand the complexity of what that workflow is going to look like and bring security and ops in and try and, trying to build out all of those components. So I know we can talk endlessly about security components within there. I know that TFN can talk about um, kind of, you know, Terraform components and modules and how, how to create, how this thing actually gets implemented. Um, but I think it is probably pertinent to think as well about application developers as unnecessarily perhaps being pulled into areas where I don't think they're going to give the most amount of value and that the onus really is on ops and security to build these things intrinsically into their workflows and to work within their workflows because there is a huge amount of complexity understanding and working with application developers day and day across many different companies. I see just that cognitive overload where even in terms of the configuration management of the amount of things that they have to, to manage to then ask application developers to think about zero trust or identity and access management or how they're going to access and um, put controls in, rotate certificates. I think, I think we get to a point where DevSecOps is the only option because you cannot put the onus of this onto all of your application developers or your, your, op, you know, your sort of ops system admin either. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we're in an environment now with so many microservices and edge services and, um, and technologies and applications that are run across multiple clouds or multiple environments, so it's on-prem and cloud, that this is the only realistic methodology that I can see that can actually deliver applications that are secure in a perimeterless environment. And that's twice I've said that word without <laughs> tripping up on it, so I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> I think definitely when it comes to scaling, right? I mean, it's the only way that we can actually manage environments that have to grow. And obviously, like SaaS delivery of software at this point is, is how the world has moved. Um, it's impossible to think that you would have an operations team that could kind of deal with maintaining the perimeter in the way that we would have traditionally seen it. Um, and as you say, things like certificate key management, for example, or identity management without automation and some rules around that automation, it's just it wouldn't be possible for, for those kind of systems to scale effectively. Yeah, and I suppose like if you look at how classically it used to be, and you guys can probably give me more of a stare on this, but like you know, it used to be a data center and you could control the physical edge of the environment with a firewall or something like that, but now obviously it's completely changed with a perimeter list <laughs> I don't know whether to be um <coughs> whether that was we can give you more of an insight into classic because of our age then, but I'm gonna take that as I was gonna say because <laughs> you work in security, but yeah, okay. I'm on that road. <laughs> The classic way that things worked, <laughs> which brings up an interesting point when we're thinking about DevSecOps and just those classic, classic um, frameworks or organizations. And I think whenever you're embarking on, most people who are looking at DevSecOps are looking at it as a result of some primary need, right? So it's either migration to the cloud or some digital like transformation project. There's something that is pushing people towards this. And again, to your point, Finn, about scaling, that need to scale and the, the dynamic, the dynamic 
kind of um, environment that we're working in, and certainly the, the dynamicism of the threat environment that we work in as well. But I think it's probably, again, important to think about, you said about organisation, and organisation and teams, and how I've been in many companies that have thought that the, the solution to implementing DevSecOps is a reorg. And I've seen multiple reorgs happen as a consequence of this. Um, and I'd be very cautious about kind of leadership even thinking along those lines where you do need to have your teams organized in such a way and your organization set up in such a way that can implement the methodology and the approach of DevSecOps. But in order to do that, I think you don't need a reorg. I think it's really important to look at that idea of sort of team topologies and how teams um, how work flows through teams and across teams. Um, and that goes back into that collaborative planning phase that has to happen within DevSecOps. So it's very tempting to do a reorg. I think every time you have a new project or every time a, a project's kicked off, that planning stage is about getting your security, your devs, your ops all into one room, but also starting to understand how the communication is going to work across those teams, how the work flows across those teams, and making sure there are no bottlenecks along that workflow. And if you can if you can implement that and set that as a standard, and sometimes that's adding different teams into Slack channels or creating different ways to communicate, making sure that people have access to the right people without having to go through somebody else who's not part of that workflow. Um, DevSecOps is really reliant on how you look at your people and your processes. It is not just about technology, I think. But I'm quite opinionated on that. <laughs> I agree, right? I mean, it really comes down to communication. You've got to, I think that's the one thing that's become clear to me, right? Certainly, John and ESO, it's all about collaborative effect. Traditionally, right, everything was so siloed. You know, you'd have a bunch of people that would go and build a solution because they had a business need. You'd then have a security team that would come in at the end and put the brakes on everything, essentially, right? And, you know, put a, put a firewall in front of it or whatever it might have happened to be. <coughs> Obviously, things are different now. You know, previously, we had physical data centers and physical devices and physical barriers between things. Now, um, everything's at potentially at the edge. So it's a bit scarier whenever you really think about it. But um, I think making sure that we have the right security people in the right teams to answer the right questions, to give the right rules and guidance. Um, and I, as you say, right, communication is absolutely the key. Collaborative communication is, is the key to success. Yeah, and using things like metrics as well is you know really important because if we actually have stuff that we can action on um, and get that data together, it's probably more useful than you know us guessing. Because um, you like if you from a traditional perspective, you'd probably get a report that by the time you got the report, it was already out of date. Um, so we kind of need to work with the teams and have a feedback loop that we can make really quite short. That means like if there's any telemetry data or if there's something happening, it gets in front of the right person quite quickly, and then they can actually do something about it. Um, and even if it is, you know, working on your alerting, so it doesn't just fire at you all the time. So when something important actually comes in, you're actually paying attention. Um, like when I worked back in a different job, uh, there was a thing they talked about called alert fatigue, that you've got so many notifications in your life that if you start getting hit by all these different ones, you'll just start ignoring them. Um, and then it will be the one time that somebody's actually broken into your system that you ignore it, and then you're in trouble. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of stuck with me, that it's good that we sort of work on these alerts and get them actually down to a stage where they do mean something and go to the right people. Um, yeah. 
So, I mean, the rules are important here, right? I think that's what we've established is that when it comes down to, we, in theory, we have a security team, right? You can tell your ops teams or your DevSecOps teams, this is the visibility that we want from your systems. Yeah. And then apply a kind of a profile across your infrastructure. So, obviously, number one is being able to see everything that's going on. Um, and uh, the key thing here, right, is that it's iterative. So, we can improve it or change it all the time. We can figure out that something's not working or that we haven't got the right visibility across the things that we need to see. Um, and we can maybe test off out with directly with the teams as we're kind of working through new solutions or new implementations um, in an effort to kind of reduce that fatigue. So it's about seeing the right stuff at the right time. I think the absence of perimeter is definitely to go back to that, right? That's the scary part. <laughs> I think that... Anybody, I guess, my age is kind of used to always having like a, a physical device between your important things, your crown jewels, and, and what's on accessible publicly. And so obviously now everything is potentially at the edge. I think that's, that's really the meat of it where it gets really exciting is that idea of the perceived threats versus the real threats. And as you say, TFN, to put that <laughs> into into metrics or monitoring and monitoring I can never say the word monitoring without putting alerting after it because it's pointless to look at it unless it's you know really being responded to and you've got some element of recovery in there I know you said about getting the alerts in front of the right people um, I'd go one further and be like that shouldn't be in front of people at all and you should be starting to work you know the end game here is really working towards your AI and your auto remediation and putting in place uh, recovery steps that you know are kicked off by functions or whatever else but I don't I don't like the idea of alerts going to people um, it makes me nervous because well I know you might be in the pub to start off with so. <laughs> I guess this where I do my best work <laughs> so there you don't know there's, the whole <laughs> there's the reality of that and to think of that I didn't live in IT for 20 years so Whenever I joined, I moved very quickly, actually within about a year, into the cloud environment. So from mainframe, which, but I hadn't been in mainframe long enough, maybe for it to really scar me with this idea of a perimeter. And perhaps because of that, I'm less attached to it. And I see different applications of solution, like solutions to that where I would question them and, cha and definitely challenge them where because you've got stuff on the edge, maybe that stuff on the edge should be the stuff that you're perhaps not securing as much. So starting to really think about bringing your vital assets into the core and putting your defense in depth around those core vital assets and perhaps having the confidence to build an architecture where the things on the edge or outside of the core are things that you can confidently put out on public. So if, if you can think about architecting with confidence, with the right security controls, to have things into the, in the public internet on the edge, I think that is, that's a lovely way to start. There's two starting points that actually I think are really key to this. Um, and we talked about this earlier. One of them is if I was to ask you to put your code into, onto the public internet right now, how secure or how confident would you feel doing that? Most companies that I talk to would almost faint whenever yeah. <laughs> I, I would bring that up. Um, and that's your starting point. Why? What way have you got your code 
organized? Where are you pulling your secrets from? Where, you know, how do you secure it to the point where you can say yes to that confidently? Mm -hmm. And if you can take that same perspective or starting point with some of your applications, which is a wild place to go to, right? If I turn around and said, can you put all of your applications on the public internet? Most people, again, would faint. But if you have that as your starting point to be like, why not? Let's, let's look at why that can't happen. Where is the zero trust? Where is the least privilege? What levels of attestation do you need on your identity in order for different microservices, different applications to speak to each other and to customers? What are the gaps? And so that's my first point is kind of start from those really scary places. And from a security sort of standpoint, I also start in that scary place where I start off by thinking, we're already breached. Mm -hmm. Let's think about this entire environment as though we already have a breach. We've already got a threat actor in our environment. And suddenly that changes your focus to what do I need to protect immediately? What is my encryption like around my data? How do people access my data? Who's accessing my data? Is that least privilege? Am I getting up-to-date metrics on new admin accounts that are being created, etc.? So that point of yours, Finn, about detection and early detection and discovery, I think it's the key point, but I also think it's one of the biggest challenges because in our environment, we have developers creating sandboxes and our dev, and you know, that is also to be protected because whenever I was an engineer, that's where all my, you know, I was sandboxing stuff and coming up with great solutions and introducing new products and introducing new ways of working because I'd been able to sandbox it. So you don't want to close that down. But how do you maintain a constant discovery mechanism across it? Yeah, so because uh, rules are really important here. I mean, the thing is with, with dev tech ups, in theory, anybody can deploy something that is accessible from the web, right? And so making sure that we that security team understands, you know, like your security fun function understands like what do the rules need to be and then providing some guardrails for your teams. Because you want to be you want to allow your developers or your DevSecOps teams to spin up your applications and you know make them work effectively and obviously, you know, create cool stuff, but you've also got to kind of I guess protect them from themselves to a degree. Yeah. Right? And make sure that everybody can see the things that they want to see from a monitoring perspective and that actually some of your development teams um, can't inadvertently make mistakes that might expose you. I mean, like you said, sir, right? can you imagine going to any organization and saying, we're going to put your entire infrastructure on the internet? I mean, how would anybody feel about that, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely a scary proposition, but it's the way that we need to look at how we solve the problem. Yeah, and a lot of these Microsoft, well, not to single out Microsoft, but like a lot of these cloud offerings aren't secure by default. Um, so it is something we have to sort of look at beforehand. And if you take it out of the app team's possession and turn it into that, when they just consume these, say it's a Terraform module, for example, it'll spin up a VM and it'll lock it down, it'll OS harden, it'll do all that kind of stuff. Because even you fell foul of when you spin something up, it can just create a public IP out of nowhere. <laughs> We've all been tripped up by it. <laughs> and I still cannot understand why the CSPs, why the cloud providers, make all the doors and windows open default. Yeah. I just can't get my head around this logic. Where well, I'm is like, it not similar to what you're saying, though, that like it's making you think about the security of it? Yeah, for sure. That they literally going, right, how can, how can someone break into this? Well, you have to figure it out because I have everything open here. 
Well, they probably also don't want the liability as well. Like, so they're probably like, no, it's your problem. I don't get yeah. sued for it. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. about the shared responsibility model, right? Which yeah. with. And I think as well, there's um, there's a bit of a, I think there's a, a tactic there that um, obviously you kind of pay for public IP addresses. There's a whole business thing behind it, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. But it definitely, um, it only takes like an initial discovery of some stuff, um, such as public public IPs attached to scary things yeah. um, to really make you think about, okay, how do we need to tackle the problem? Threat, I mean, modeling is important, right? Understanding your risk, understanding your exposure, and then figuring out what do we need to do first? Uh, you know, who are the people we need to protect from themselves initially, right? And then how do we kind of monitor what we're doing going forward? And that, that model is dynamic. I think that's really important to state as well, is that the, this is not a planning stage where you create a static threat model. This has to be constantly reassessed and fed into the data that you're collecting and the metrics that you're collecting. Um, but also then, exactly to your point about those controls and layers of controls and guardrails. And, and that in itself gets interesting because we start to think about controls, multiple controls at the same layers or controls on top of controls. And, and then I start to get... Then I start to get a little bit nervous about managing controls that are there because another control isn't fully trusted. Whether or not uh, the term zero trust can be pushed beyond identity and into the world of controls and guardrails possibly too, where anything that has human intervention requires, I think, a secondary control. And it sounds completely overkill, but in every sort of detection threat incident that I've seen and been made aware of, it's usually uh, as unfortunate as it is, we're just, we're human. It's in our human nature to make mistakes and to put the wrong config in or not put, you know, the right CPU in or, you know, we didn't put a memory limit in or, you know, these things just make stuff blow up. Um, so I think that importance and acceptance to some extent that, We've got this control in at this at layer seven or whatever it is, um, but if that should fail, we also have another control in. And there's a big argument about that in the industry at the minute, about whether or not having full confidence, whether we should be working towards having solutions that provide 100% confidence in a control at each layer as opposed to multiple controls within each layer. So within, say, the application layer or layer seven or... So trying to really think about where we put our energy as an industry. Do we just look at our own businesses and make those secure or do we try and figure this problem out? Do we try and look at how can we create controls that are removing that human intervention and that propensity for mistake to enter into the workflow? And I think if we can focus on where we can do that, we can move forward leaps and bounds. And then we hit this really sweet spot of having a simplified architecture. And to, that's, you know, that's the that's a utopia that goes through my head at 3 a.m. <laughs> well, get self-healing as well. I mean, that would be the utopia if we had an environment that if it didn't get pretty sick, it just closed itself off or even scorched earth and move towards the DR sort of type scenarios. But I think, yeah, they're... The dream. <laughs> well, the scorched earth <laughs> argument is super interesting too because that is something that within within cyber defense we have to think about all the time, right? So with malware, it, it is this constant idea of 
how can we move to the point where if we have a persistent actor, we can literally rip stuff down and totally fresh rebuild? Like that's the that's the end game. So we we live every day trying to find workflows, backup procedures, DR, you know, HA that allows us to work within those parameters. Um, and that's not easy, especially in multi-cloud. And on that scorched earth point, um, thinking very much about the way that we do things in ESO is with that underlying uh, infrastructure's code, that immutability that has to be built in from the very beginning of our workflows. So that, and I think as an industry, we can do a lot more around those sort of those breaches and, and understanding the incidents that are affecting all of us. Now there's a nervousness there, which is obvious and very well accepted because you don't want to start telling people about weaknesses in your company in case exploiters are you know going to take advantage of that mm -hmm. but in some way i know that i know that the the national center of Cybersecurity started some stuff around creating a, a very closed platform where people could highlight incidents and and some um issues that, that were maybe threats or certain trends of threats that were hitting uh, UK-based, like charities, governments, businesses. Which, but it didn't, I haven't really seen anything go <clears throat> maybe beyond that. And that was very much, I suppose the focus of that, unfortunately, is very much within public sector and kind of statutory orgs. So there's definitely, I mean, there's a, a massive organisation in the US as well, kind of around those three or four letter acronym organizations kind of threat intelligence sharing right and mm -hmm. so there's a big push um to kind of anonymized intelligence sharing and activity sharing right where organizations don't necessarily need to give all the info about what exactly is happening but they can share enough to maybe benefit other like-minded or you know um, similar industry organizations and um, so ncse do that do some stuff in the uk i know that um like, as I say, CIA um, and the Isaac organizations mm -hmm. that exist globally, right? So, obviously, um, ESO is a member of the healthcare Isaac, but there are obviously a bunch of them across many industries, aerospace, security, financial services. Um, and all of these services can kind of plug into your DevSecOps um, um, organization within your, within your business to basically inform the decisions that you're making, but also like proactively monitor the output from day-to-day -day kind of operations. And it's still a new field. Like we're still in a really young industry in that respect. So even in terms of the cloud and the kind of threats that we're seeing. So, you know, I think you can always, I think the luxury I've had actually of kind of going out and consulting across, you know, the Fortune 500 or whatever is I always had, <clears throat> sorry, this idea that the companies that I'd worked in previously were doing everything wrong. And then whenever you get out into that global environment, you actually realize that, you know, even some of these like top banks or retailers or whatever they happen to be, they've, they're making the same mistakes that, you know, companies are making here and the companies I started off working in are making. And I think there's a bit of a, we can be very, very tough on ourselves and it is a very dynamic environment. And maybe just to, to have some, I always like to give people some sense of confidence in that you might think you're bad, but everybody's bad so you know there is there is that reality it's a constantly moving target it's evolving right and you know the threat landscape evolves technology evolves and as you say right everybody struggles it doesn't matter how big your pockets are everybody has you know 
um, kind of an unsolvable problem around fixing all the issues that they see. Um, and just as you think you've fixed something, the rules have all changed. And you know, I'm going to disagree with you on unsolved problems because I think whenever I look at whenever I look at some of the you know the best practice that's happening in pockets across lots of companies, I actually think a lot of these problems have been solved. But I think um, by certain tools or approaches, but I think the big problem in the implementation always goes back to people and processes and the fact that people are still struggling to find the right way to implement this and different shapes and different versions of this within their own company. I just think it's that's a really hard customising of solutions as opposed to finding solutions. It's making sure you customise them. It's cookie cutter, right? I mean, it's it's it can't be one size fits all. And you know, if you look look at the size of our organization versus you know some of the big financial institutions, for example, right? Um, the same problems to solve, but very different ways of solving them. And I, I guess arguably, right, the smaller your organization, maybe the more flexible you can be. You know, move away from like huge teams and waterfalls and all that kind of horrible stuff, and um, to something that allows you to, like flex a bit more easily and actually maybe understand you know, the security problem that you're trying to solve and, and do things a bit more agile, to use a buzzword. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you can do things like, you know, work the policies into the code. So, like, you know, use Azure, for example. You can have Azure policy baked in so that there are the guardrails for the teams and they always, they don't even have to think about it because um, they won't be opening up the estate for anything because they can't. Um, and then as things get added to it, we can just sort of add new blocks to the policy as they go, and that can all be automated and lovely, but maybe this is me coming at it from a DevOps perspective. So, you know, I think just look at everything and see how I can automate it. <laughs> Which is interesting. There's a really interesting argument in there too, I think in terms of that. What, what level of flexibility do you give your developers? And I'm always really keen to talk to developers about this because I... Like, I have friends who are developers who have walked out of companies because they've locked down specific IDEs. Or, um, and there is, a, you know, there is an argument going through the industry at the minute looking at internal developer platforms and whether we should have a very standardized and customized approach to how developers are able to innovate and work and create features. And there's a really gray area for me that the lines feel really fine between giving developers that flexibility, but also trying to reduce the, complex, the complexity around the workflow and enabling them to work in a rapid and you know creative way. And as a security person, I am very cautious about, I don't want to ruin that. I don't want to go in there with so many you know lockdowns on libraries and plugins and because I've I have you know I've played with stuff in the past open source or whatever and, and come up with great solutions and enjoyed it and I love playing in the playground like everybody else but you know and maybe that's good is that I never I try never to forget that but there are definite um, friction points in there and it's and finding that line maybe it goes back to communication maybe it goes back to having really honest discussions with your developers and not railroading tools in on top of them and um, that's a very Good approach for security people do not do. Um, making sure that tools are, maybe even a set of tools are given to developers that are going to solve a security problem, like a, you know, a DAST or SAS tool. Let them play with it, let them figure it out, and then let them ultimately have the final choice, what, what works for them, what reduces their need to context switch out of their IDE or, you know, what, or whatever IDE of choice they have. 
there's a lot of again maybe just back to people and processes and communication and collaboration but there are fine lines and there is definitely no cookie cutter for that one that's yeah. I like rules, so. <laughs> this is definitely the fourth time you've said rules. Like, you know, from an architecture perspective, right, I think, yeah, listen, you've got to give people a playground to, to, you know, to develop and create cool new things, right, and to do stuff better than we have done in the past. But So I think, you know, allowing people to, to develop what they want and to deploy the environments to support that is absolutely fantastic. We just put some rules there that say... You know, you can't put a, a public IP on a database and you can't, uh, you know, have a, a, a firewall rule that gives the world um, access to a particular service. But everything else you can do within this realm is all good. Um, and then, so that's a kind of the kind of creative space, right? I think when it comes to production, just to go back to what Finn was saying, um, you know, Ultimately, what we want to get to is a set of rules that are enforceable. Eventually, we get to the stage where if um, any of our team in, in, across DevSecOps deploys something that we don't really like or we have the rules, sorry to use that word again, um, <laughs> to kind of hold back Policy. on, then you know, we basically deprovision that right or whatever. We refer it for review um, and put some gates in there so that... The rules where they need to have, or where they're required, are available, but the playground still exists off to one side as well, maybe slightly logically separate. Yeah, we can automate that playground as well, again, DevOpsy, um, make it secure by default. So if we have like a job in, say, you know, Azure DevOps, for example, that we can just click a button and it can give a developer an environment that they can do whatever they want with within reasonability because it's all written in code, so it just spins up itself and they don't even have to worry about the infrastructure or anything. That is also where you get a, a clash between business and your sort of security application teams is whenever those, I'm going to say it, I'm not one for rules. Um, <clears throat> I like policies, yes, but not policies. Policies, potato, potato. <laughs> but the, I like, just, the, the word rule makes me nervous. But the, the idea that we only have that at production is, you know, we definitely don't want to be advocating for that either because then you get to the stage where everything is created the features about to be pushed the business is pushing to get it out to get it out get it out and then all of a sudden the application is having to go through the rigmarole of a ton of rules or policies and then everything slows down and then security are the worst in the world so as much as i love the sandbox idea um i still wouldn't call that development and there's a few things that I'm pretty opinionated about in terms of development, test, and production. And that would be having the same policies throughout all three so that you don't get that bottleneck going into production, so that your developers are more than aware of what's going to slow them down, even moving from their dev to test environments, which with infrastructure as code should be as quick as a kind of blue-green deployment, hopefully. Um, and then the other thing that I'm really opinionated about is having monitoring and alerting in the dev and test environments before you move to production because I've seen so many companies fall down where the developers are suddenly getting alerts or suddenly getting logs or so in production because they didn't learn the the content of those logs, how where things were the you know where the key information lay within those logs they didn't understand how to set up their alerting properly in the lower environments and then whenever the proverbial hits the fan in production 
it's just a scatter of chaos. Yeah. Um, so monitoring from day one, people will say security first, I'm always, I'm always follow that up with security first, monitoring first. It has to, you have to know your logs, have those going through parsing or whatever it is that you need from day one. Like as, a, as application developers, take responsibility for that and, and you know, love your logs. Not in a tail-f sort of way, because that's, that's a whole See other argument. Yeah. <laughs> it's got, we've got a cloud now, so... <laughs> Someone else's computer, right? Yeah. <laughs> you did get it in. <laughs> uh, yeah, and as part of that, like we want to get it all into the processes, because obviously we want to have, you know, as you said, SAS and DAS stuff, like scanning the code before it even gets to any sort of infrastructure that could possibly or possibly expose it to anything. Um, so if we can get all that sort of stuff baked into the SDLC that the developers actually use, it means before it even gets to the stage where something's deployed, it's already been scanned for vulnerabilities, be that log4j, to use a horrible example, um, or you know whatever the next one's going to be. Um, yeah, so it's just taking it out of the developer's hands and making it their life a lot easier that they just have to push code, and then it all magically happens, and then their code ends up in an environment that they can actually test. Definitely agree. It's got to be all the same, right? All, all the environments got to be the same. Sandbox off to one side to, to play. Yeah, but it's so important, right? And so that policy, applying policy rather than roots, perhaps, just to make sure that, you know, the right visibility, the right monitoring. One solved. <laughs> yeah, I think we're done here. Yeah. <laughs> now we just have to go home and implement everything we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I think... I think the monitoring, I think the infrastructure's code is key um, and it's probably looking as well at, you know this from working with the blueprints and, and then you spend most of your days trying to think of how to use Terraform to modularize um, all these components. And that's probably also just the starting point of thinking from a code point of view and how you're going to build. And we're very keen to start building before we plan or before we think about security or before we have collaborative meetings. We're, we're, we're all engineers really at heart. And we just love going in and like, build it, build it. Um, but I'm like, start at the start. You know, what does your AMI look like? Is it baselined with some, you know, base level security? Start at the beginning before you even start taking your VM or whatever and building it out. It's like, where what level of you know what level of engine power do you need in that VM? And then thinking along the lines of the layers of what those modules are. And every stack will have some combination of a database, uh, you know, maybe a, a web interface, uh, um, a logging and monitoring. So you know the stack is generally made up of the same components. And if you build your Terraform or your infrastructure's code to mirror that, I think that's a really healthy starting place, which I've seen people not do, like just monolith, um, you know, code repos where everything's thrown in together. And that, and that poses a real issue for us in security because how do we prevent somebody from changing the code for the monitoring that they should really only have access to the code for the database? You know, so it's just about delineation as well. And, that's not about keeping people out or restricting people. That should really be about empowering people within the component that they are fully responsible for, I think. And just to mention, we wouldn't use VMs anywhere possible. <laughs> I hate VMs. <laughs> Serverless where we can. <laughs> Thanks very much to Finn, Finn and Sarah from ESO for joining us today to talk about the world of DevSecOps. 
Thanks for having us. Yeah. If you find this podcast interesting, ASO is launching the first HashiCorp user group at their Belfast office on February 23rd. This event is to bring together local tech talent with HashiCorp guest speakers to share stories, challenges, and demonstrate solutions. Thanks again for listening. That's all from this episode of the Sync NI Tech Crack podcast series. Join us next time to hear the latest insight into the NI tech scene.